0: Hey, this is Max, and welcome to the Ronin System Podcast. Today, I got another special guest. It's Adam Godwin. He is the creator and instructor of the Udemy course Existential Therapy, Psychotherapy, and Counseling. Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, yeah, my name's Adam Godwin.
1: I'm from Oxfordshire in England originally, and I, I started studying philosophy in school, so formally when I was about 16, and then I went on to do an undergraduate degree. In philosophy and psychology at the University of Reading and eventually went on to do a master's in philosophy before training to become a philosophy teacher and I taught philosophy in schools in secondary schools I think what you would call middle school and high school in the states uh, for yep. a few years and uh, now I run a few kind of mini businesses and kind of passive income streams uh, Usually focusing on educational resources, but as you've heard already, online courses as well, uh, mainly focused on philosophy and religion and sociology. Yeah. So what, what led you kind of down that path? I think, well, it actually started at a very young age. I remember being in the car with my father and something came on the radio and they mentioned the secrets of the universe. And I said to my father, I said, <laughs> Dad, you know, what What are the secrets of the universe? And he said, well, they're secrets, so I, I don't really know. And I think at that moment I was on a bit of a mission to discover any... <laughs> to
0: find out. <laughs> Absolutely. And,
1: and so I suppose the question, what is reality, actually was probably one of the questions that always drove me. And in time that probably morphed slightly into... What is the nature of being, or the nature of the human subject, and and that led me in part towards existentialism. Uh, I also remember at a very young age. I don't know, I don't know if you remember being so young that you would win arguments by saying, "Yeah, but my dad says X, Y, and Z," and and that would kind of be the end of it. And I remember probably about six years old. Someone in a playground turning to me and says saying, yes, well, your dad might be wrong. And at that point, I think <laughs> I was thrown into this kind of skeptical uncertainty about the world, and I had to try and find my own answers from that point on, really. So, yeah.
0: You really questioned your life after that?
1: <laughs> I, well, I did, yes, and I, I don't think I've ever stopped, actually.
0: So <laughs> so existential, I, I guess existentialism, What? What? what exactly, I guess that's like, the philosophy behind like existing? Uh, yes, Would that be- it's,
1: it's fundamentally interested in existence and the nature of human existence. So it is interested in ontology, but it's not such a kind of dry academic study as some forms of philosophy are. It's also very much interested in the human condition and the challenges that arise naturally from our experience of living and, and how we ought to to uh, To respond to those challenges so uh, there was there's an issue of how we respond to what they call existential givens things like death and mortality the kind of fragility and brevity of life um, meaninglessness the lack of a given meaning or purpose or direction it's not really sure why we're here and what we're meant to do with life and there are a number of ways we can respond to that, and different existentialists have different views about what the best way is. Um, There's also an issue around our isolation as human beings. There's a kind of unbridgeable gulf between all of us as human beings. And in existential psychology, they're especially interested in how that affects relationships. Many people entering and staying in highly dysfunctional relationships, because they're very much afraid of confronting that existential Isolation. And I think finally, and perhaps most importantly, one of the existential givens we struggle with, and it has, I think, huge ramifications for mental health conditions, is choice, freedom, our ability to choose. And for all of these existential conditions and givens, it creates a kind of anxiety in us. And existential psychologists, especially Irvin Yalom, who is a very famous American existential psychologist they're very much interested in how we try to escape that anxiety and defend against that anxiety instead of actually facing it and potentially using it in some kind of helpful or beneficial way
0: okay so i mean here's the thing i i actually have a bachelor's in psychology Mm. but i wouldn't say i was the grandest of students so I'm, i'm you know there there were some things that you said that actually like I know exactly what you're talking about, but you know a, a lot of like cuz I'm on your your uh Udemy site page right now yes. and a lot of what I'm reading I'm just like, "Oh, I know those words." Uh-huh. <laughs> but so can you uh go in a little bit more depth uh for especially like the people that don't really know the difference between psychology and philosophy, like those mm-hmm. those two?
1: I think when you go back into kind of ancient philosophy, like looking at the ancient Greeks, there wasn't such a separation between philosophy and psychology as there is now. The ancient Greeks were concerned with eudaimonia, human flourishing, and how to live the good life. And I think one of the criticisms that continental philosophy and existential philosophy brings to the table with reference to modern academic philosophy is that it's a little bit dry and perhaps... Irrelevant to the actual challenges of how we ought to live. Obviously, there's uh, ethical philosophers who who talk a lot about how we should live in terms of uh, good and evil, right and wrong. But they're partly They're often contrasted with analytic philosophers who seem to get quite caught up in how uh, what what words mean and kind of con- conceptual analysis. You could say. Um. The difference between philosophy and psychology, I would say, therefore, isn't necessarily that large. You know, the pursuit of the love of wisdom is, is partly a psychological thing. And again, how we ought to live. How would I differentiate between existential philosophy and existential psychology? I would say that the latter is much more focused on clinical psychology and the practice of therapists and counsellors and psychotherapists. and A lot of existential therapists actually prefer the term therapist or coach to psychotherapist, even though it may sound less esteemed and fancy, because (laughs) existential therapy focuses on the person's whole life. It focuses on how they're relating to their life, how they're choosing to live, as opposed to just the thoughts and feelings such as, you know, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy is very much focused on. How people are thinking and habitual patterns whereas again an existential therapist might be more interested in the person's whole life situation and how they're choosing to perpetuate that situation and perhaps refusing to take responsibility for it and uh, I should add that one of the things that makes existential approaches to therapy very different to approaches such as cognitive behavioral therapy are the goals and one of the main goals in existentialism is and or existential psychology is authenticity being true to yourself and living by your own values instead of simply conforming to a kind of herd uh, morality or a set of norms that you don't necessarily believe in so letting other people live your life and you know also being perhaps a bit of a phony or a fake it's about being mm-hmm. sincere and and real with with people i suppose
0: okay so i I guess you you could say that philosophy is more the the concept in the art, whereas psychology is more the the like the practice. Like the science part of it. You you could look at it like that, the practice.
1: I actually was recently making a a lesson for a different course, and it was talking about what is philosophy. And I I was reminded of one of my lecturers when I first started at university. He said that philosophy is anything when you think about it hard enough. I think that's actually (laughs) a fantastic working definition. You know, you might work as a, a car designer, or something. And when you think about how to design cars deeply enough, you enter the realm of philosophy, I think. And I do, though, like to return to the original literal definition of philosophy as being the love of wisdom. And I do Mm -hmm. often think that modern day philosophy is an incredibly unwise use of one's time. (laughs) It's not really much to do with loving wisdom. And Actually, historically, many of the people that we we deem to be most wise, the sages of Eastern religions, for example, they often warned against precisely what philosophy has become, getting lost in thought and trying to understand the world, world in, a, in a simply conceptual fashion. Uh, yes, lost in thought, I think, is not very wise, not a wise way of being. So, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's funny because um the the thing you said about getting lost in thought but also like that sort of pursuit of like why um i remember being told that uh all science is philosophy or was philosophy at one point for sure yeah and um <laughs> it's 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 really funny to me because you know everyone has this con- like it has this idea of like has this question of like where we come from or like why are we here yeah. and all this but then when we actually like get to that point and and you made the point of like you know like the uh, the actual gurus back in the east like the far east or, or in those eastern religions they'll talk about how um you're you're like you'd modern philosophy would be kind of like a a Bastardization, I guess, of of the actual type of philosophy where you're wasting your wasting your thoughts. Yes, and
1: again, getting lost in thought, which I think, yeah. especially in Buddhism and Taoism, and I, I mean, I often, I pretty much on a daily basis think of this one part of the Dao De Jing where he says, "The scholar learns more and more every day. The sage forgets more and more every day." It's very counterintuitive, <laughs> but a kind of peace, I think, can be found from that. And I was interested, you said, you know, thinking about the meaning of life. And I wonder if that's actually a part of the problem. We're trying to solve the feeling of meaninglessness that we often all face, I think, by thinking about it. Whereas, in fact, the feelings of meaningfulness are derived from behaviors and choices we make and often subjective Uh, There are huge subjective differences on what will generate feelings of meaningfulness or meaninglessness for each of us. And at the same time, I think mindfulness itself can help us live more meaningful feeling lives. So when you're truly focused on preparing your food for lunch, let's say, (laughs) if you're really focused on that instead of lost in depressing thoughts about things, That in itself can feel very meaningful. And I actually, once upon a time, a long, long time ago now, so I can't really brag, but I stayed in a Soto Zen Buddhist monastery on the border of Scotland. And I think Zen Buddhists are very much into that way of generating meaning. The idea that if you focus on the present moment and really give yourself to the task at hand, then it will feel meaningful, even if it's a very ordinary. And day-to-day kind of action like working in the kitchens or raking the leaves or whatever it happens to be
0: yeah that's actually so i'm a i'm buddhist hmm. but i'm more traditionally buddhist than i am uh anything else uh-huh. so what i mean by that is like i was raised on on the some of the not really ideals but the practice i see so you know like the temp going to temple uh-huh. and and slight meditation and, and uh you know the festivals like the uh, the holidays i see so like so cu- c-
1: culturally buddhist you could say exactly yes.
0: and so um growing up i did have a lot of questions about it you know like why do we do this you know why why are we burning these incense why do we go to the temple every every sunday like mm. um coincidentally our day to go to the temple was also sunday huh. but um, it was all these questions and I didn't get any answers. I see. And so yes. um, I went looking for answers and I went and, you know, I'll be honest, it's still a very long journey for me. And it's, it's, it's a long, you know, it's a a lot to take in that I haven't necessarily taken in just because life has gotten in the way. I, you see. Know, I haven't had that extreme passion to, to constantly pursue these Buddhist teachings. But one of the bigger things, I guess, that, that really I can take away from it often is um you know like you said being myself but also being i guess one with with the world or at least trying to you know yeah trying to be a good person and and
1: and i suppose focusing on the interconnectedness is a theme but uh you remind me of a joke actually you know on on the topic (laughs) of the path and how long the buddhist path can seem to be sometimes there's this joke from from Japan. And I love it because it's so simple and universal. And you can tell this joke to hippies at music festivals and they always (laughs) laugh. And essentially there's a monk walking down the side of a river and he wants to get to the other side of the river. And eventually he sees another monk sitting there and he says, he shouts out, how do I get to the other side? And the monk looks back at him instantly and says, you are on the other side. And I think (laughs) enlightenment can be a bit like that. We see a set of behaviors which we then label as enlightened and we seek to become that person or more like them. Whereas certainly in, in Zen Buddhism, there's this doctrine of original enlightenment, which kind of suggests that enlightenment must be a property of awareness, an inherent property that cannot be lost. It's meant to be the one permanent thing in the face of all of the impermanence that we face, perhaps. And I think it's a very interesting approach to Buddhism because, of course, one of Buddha's main teachings is that desire is the antithesis of contentment. So as long as you desire yeah. enlightenment and you're like striving to change yourself or your mind. This is a form of desire that prevents peace and contentment. So, of course, it's so easy to talk about these things and so difficult to <laughs> yeah. actually find such peace sometimes. But, or well, you know, I, yeah, I yeah. do try. It's, it's
0: easy to talk about, hard to do. Yes, that's <laughs>
1: right. That's right. I do try to meditate still daily, at least for a little bit, and, and do nothing. This is the... The approach to meditation I was taught to
0: to do nothing yeah. is to really meditate but one of the uh so i I try and meditate at least like once a day, um but typically it's like maybe once a week just to kind of like recenter myself yeah and uh, one of the major practices I use is is um called i believe it's called leaf meditation that's ah. that's what I call it, so what you do is you imagine yourself as a leaf um and you place that leaf on a river, a flowing river. And you just you go about the river just imagining, like, there are the trees. They're green. There's the rocks. They're, they're gray. And you just go along this river just to kind of, like, it's not really meant to, to bring any focus to anything. It's meant to just kind of bring you down, relax you, and just kind of take your mind off of everything else. I see. I see. Yeah, so I, I typically do that before I sleep just because I used to have like insomniac issues where I wouldn't be able to sleep. It'd be like three, two, three, four in the morning and I'm still awake. And I don't really know what to do. Like even today, I, uh, or I guess it would be today. I slept at like two o'clock. Oh, right. So, ah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things I do just kind of like take, cause I'll have those anxiety issues where I'm thinking about like, I don't know if you've had this before, but I'll be thinking about something I did, like a mistake I made back when elementary school, when I was like eight or nine. Oh yes. Like, oh, why am I thinking?
1: Yes, exactly. You know? Yes, for <laughs> sure. I, I do get lost in such thoughts and then annoyed at myself for getting exactly. lost in them and, and inflicting that suffering on myself. Yeah. But yeah, so it's interesting. There are so many approaches to meditation and it's tempting to pick a favorite, but I think they all have something to offer and I mean, what you describe is an approach to meditation based on visualizing, whereas the approach I I was taught, because it is fundamentally about doing nothing, in, in, includes not visualizing anything. And it's actually, I think, the only approach to meditation in which med- the meditator keeps their eyes open. And there's a wonderful, wonderful poem from ancient China. It's called Faith in Heart Mind. And I really recommend that listeners look it up. But at one point in this poem, it says, do not be averse to the six sense realms. To fully accept the world of the senses is the same as true enlightenment. And when it comes to getting lost in thought and how to respond to that, the the monks that I was taught by advocated returning to the present moment and really engaging with it with the senses so you really look at the wall and there's a famous story of a a zen master who's set to do this big dharma talk that's meant to go on for hours and he gets up on the stage and just holds up his walking stick and says do you see this cane and then he smashes it on the ground and says do you hear this cane and actually most of us aren't really seeing and hearing what's going on right in front of us because we're so lost in our own thoughts and in a way the simple goal of I think Zen Buddhism is to really see and hear what is given in the present moment without adding or taking away anything from it yeah
0: that's interesting I've I have no experience in Zen Buddhism, actually. Like I should, but it's uh, which yeah. which uh,
1: form of Buddhism are, are you most influenced by? Would you say?
0: Again, um it's culturally Buddhist. So um a lot of it I've come to find is more just like a blanket, broad term. Yeah. Um, like even my parents wouldn't even know the different types. I see. Of, and wh- which of,
1: culture? is that are you from
0: or is Chinese. your family from Chi- so we're we're Chinese I see. um and if you really kind of broke it down we're f- my my father is from the uh region known as uh Chiu Chiu, uh-huh. or, or and it's oh like a more coastal mountainous region that's very traditional I guess okay. you know like they have a lot of cultural ideas that I guess wouldn't really jive with modern society. In I way. see. Um, so, a lot of the things we did, uh, quote unquote, religiously, was more geared towards um, like ancestral stuff. Aha, uh-huh. Confucianism so, more than Buddhism and Taoism, perhaps. Kind of. So, um, we have a shrine back at my parents' house. Like the the shrine has the the deities, you know, like the Buddhas and. Um, can't remember the one with the spear, but, um, either way there's the deities, but then there's also, uh, my grandparents. Hmm. And so they're on there as sort of like semi, semi deities. Yeah. And so what they'll like, they basically like bless the house they'll protect us. Um, as, as long as we, you know, we provide for them. And it's really interesting because on certain like holidays, like festivals, like, um, the tomb sweeping festival which happens pretty much like every like some like every spring like may may april time uh we'll actually go and essentially have a party hmm. at the cemetery that's over over their graves that
1: is very yeah unusual yeah. compared to, yeah. to our culture
0: i i guess if you uh do you know like cinco de mayo like I the do. day of the dead yeah yeah so it's the same concept we'll uh we'll pray to them and we'll, we'll give them things like we'll actually take like cars and houses like paper cars and houses Mm. we burn them in the sense that when it's burned it rises up and goes to them i see uh wherever they are in the the next plane and it's really interesting because it's it's sort of that that life cycle reincarnation thing Mm. but at a different scale where they get reincarnated into a better realm where they can still watch over us But for some reason they still need cars. Yeah, yeah. So and like hell money or whatever it's called. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the little the little gold nuggets. So it's it's all really interesting. Um I wouldn't really classify it as anything specific just because a lot of the the people I've met that are that are Chinese as well, um, and are more traditional, like a lot of Chinese here in the US have have sort of given up on these ideas. But yeah. um I mean, I wonder if people in the
1: West might benefit or at least find it interesting to think about their ancestors more and their ancestors more deeply and perhaps more generally to think about the process of hard work and love, but also the hate and the murder and the stealing, <laughs> the, the surviving of the plague and things like this yeah. that led to us being here, whether it would change how we look at our lives. And I think there's a general tendency for people to romanticize their own ancestors. And you see this also when people talk about the past lives that they believe they had. It's always some aristocrat or king or queen. It's never never the prostitute or the thief kind of thing. But of course, I think most of us are probably descended from Slaves, prostitutes, and thieves, and that includes myself, you know. I, um, <laughs> I, I'm from Oxford, and I'm going to ha- use some awful language here, but it's in a good cause, and an educational cause. There's, there's a street in Oxford called Magpie Lane, you know, the bird, a magpie. Yeah. But I think about 400 years ago, this street was, and you must excuse my language, it was called Grope Cunt Lane, because it was the center of prostitution in Oxford. And of course, prostitution is the oldest profession, so we're told. So presumably, most of us are descended from prostitutes, I would think at some point, going back at some point. <laughs> so these are the ancestors we need to be honoring with our behavior today, The people that perhaps weren't in the conventional sense, the most honorable of people. But but yeah, it's more of an
0: amusing side thought than the focus of my course. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you when the, you think of it that way, I've never personally actually thought of like past lives or anything. I've always thought of it more as like I don't really know actually. Like I, I try not to to delve too deeply into those kinds of thoughts because I always feel like I'm I'm it's it's really going to get me nowhere.
1: Maybe. You know? I mean, not, it's not yeah. like it'll necessarily change whatever the afterlife is. I think it's, <laughs> it's good to understand that the afterlife is a mystery. I'm always deeply suspicious of anyone who's too certain about the afterlife, whether it's that there is one or there isn't one, because I think there are some solid epistemological reasons why it is and must be a mystery, namely the fact that none of us have died that live so if you're alive you yeah. can't really say and of course when we see a body cease to function it's impossible to say what experientially the subject of life is going through at that point or potentially continues to go through and to to bring it back to existentialism a little bit from the beginning of existentialism with kierkegaard there's been an interest in the subject the The being that experiences life, the body, thoughts, emotions, objects. And there's a very close connection to a school of philosophy called phenomenology and an approach to epistemology, uh, phenomenology, which is very much rooted in first-person experience and analysing consciousness as it is given without making what you could call naturalistic assumptions about it. And this is a really important thing when it comes to mental health, because in our very materialistic society, which has a a very materialistic worldview and cognitive schema, we tend to interpret mental health problems in terms of our bodies. So if I'm depressed, it might be because of a neurotransmitter imbalance instead of maybe something to do with the choices that I'm making in my life. So we interpret our suffering in terms of ourselves as objects, not as subjects. And existential psychology was influenced quite a lot by the anti-psychiatry movement. And it has a bit of a wariness towards the diagnostic practices and the excessive labeling of what are essentially universal experiences of suffering as pathologies when they're actually kind of normal. And to to use a very simple metaphor or analogy for listeners, I sometimes think that a psychiatrist is a bit like a man who puts a dog inside a cage and is upset by the barking of the dog. And and to understand the barking, does some blood tests and finds that the cortisol levels are wrong, the serotonin levels are disturbed. And so Starts to give the dog drugs to stop it barking when, of course, the fundamental reason it's barking is often the condition that it's put in of the cage. And of course, human beings often find themselves in metaphorical cages, and often we ourselves are the ones who either put ourselves in that cage or keep ourselves in the cage for longer than is necessary. And yes, I think also those around us, often the people we think love us the most have a bit of a vested interest in keeping us in the cage of inauthenticity as well. They have certain expectations that we're expected to conform to, for example, that aren't necessarily reflections of our own values or even our own interests.
0: So, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, I'm glad you mentioned the, the drug for the dog thing, because one of the things that I picked up a lot in, in, you know, learning like getting my degree in in psychology or basically just my bachelor's um, was that, you know, drug therapy is, is very popular and very, very jet. Like it's all pretty much all realms of psychology, I guess, use it. Right. Like if you have a mental issue, you, you take this drug, right? Like if you have depression, you take this drug. If you have uh, anxiety, you take this drug. Schizophrenia, you take this drug. And one of the hardest things for me to accept is that you know I I'm a firm believer in behavioral therapy. Mm. I'm a firm believer if that you have any form of mental illness, the first step is is to, uh, I don't want to say socialize, but to to socialize you. You know, get you in an environment where you can you can speak up and you can yeah. um, sort of express yourself and not be you know subdued by these drugs to be. Mm-hmm trapped in that in that cage you know yes. like like you said everyone's in this this cage and everyone wants to get out and maybe you're not you're not in a physical cage maybe you're in like a like a mental cage yes. where something's stopping you from being being your true self or exactly or being anything and and the best way is to figure out like what what it is about this cage that you you can make better or you if you can even get out of it, you know. And yes. I, I don't believe the drugs do anything close to, to to helping with that, you know?
1: Yes. I mean I don't uh, I don't want to say there's no benefit to psychiatric medication. And there certainly is a time and a place for it in some cases, especially perhaps in emergencies where people have, have entered a time of their life of such su- extreme suffering that the, that the medication keeps them alive in some sense but i think often there is a a fundamental behavioral uh, change needs to occur and you could argue that any therapy or any therapist is actually hoping for some kind of behavioral change in a patient and that could simply be a change in their mental behaviors in the patterns of thought that they generate but i think actually often it is about taking responsibility for your situation and facing up to choices and instead of denying choices. And, you know, the ability to make choices is a source of great anxiety for us because the power of human choice is very boundless. You could do anything right now. I could I could pick up this microphone and throw it through the screen and throw myself out of <laughs> the window. You know, that is a choice or a series of choices I could make. And yet I stick to doing this. Um, you, when we make a choice, we're choosing between infinite paths. We're only choosing one. And when we do, we exclude all the others. And it might be wrong. It might be the wrong choice. And we can't ever really know for sure. And so we have this emotional Drive to avoid making choices for ourselves and avoid taking responsibility for our lives in that sense, and and the choices that sustain them, and that is one of the main focuses of of some forms of existential therapy. Though there are there are other forms of uh, and other focuses, and I think one very interesting uh, branch of existential therapy is called logotherapy which is pioneered by a guy called Viktor Frankl, who survived Auschwitz, which is where he came up. I actually uh, uh, you know. I have his book. Ah, Man's Search for Meaning, is it? Yes. Ah, I exactly, have exactly, exactly the, the same one, one <laughs> the same cover, and it's a fantastic book. Any listeners, yeah, it's a good read. you must, you know, it should be top of your reading list for existential psychotherapy and, and psychology, along with, I think, Yalom's book, which is simply called existential psychotherapy that is to me that is the bible of existential therapy and if you read that you kind of you know half of it all kind of thing but if you don't want to spend weeks
0: reading the book of course there is
1: a fantastic udemy (laughs) course that summarizes it neatly
0: (laughs) i'll have to check that out um there's actually a a, i mean by the time this episode comes out i don't know if the deal will still be there but there's a deal for like 86 percent off
1: yeah, I have to say Udemy are a little sneaky about that because there always seems to be, it's like uh, only, 10, really? only 10% only ten of the time does it seem to be the price that I set it to be. And normally you can <laughs> sign up for less than $20 or around $10, I think. So, But anyway, it's That's
0: actually kind of crazy. I mean,
1: when I made it, this course, I thought there aren't that many training courses about it. And the ones that exist are hundreds, maybe even thousands of pounds or dollars. and I don't think it's taught very often at university level and, and so when I set out I thought I'm going to make the 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 epitome like the best most unbeatable course on this that no one <laughs> will be able to top so that it'll well so it'll help help you know help people learn about it for a long time and help me earn a little bit of money from it for a long time but crucially I mean instead of paying thousands of dollars for kind of 20 dollars it's it's like 18 hours of Uh, lectures essentially so it goes in pretty deep and i I think i like to think it's the best course out there actually but i challenge any listener to you know email me if you find a better (laughs) one for less money i I challenge you know
0: (laughs) well the thing is with these with these courses i think a lot of people will actually um be more inclined to you know take on these because like i've i've actually used udemy before but for coding oh uh, yeah that is what it's most popular
1: for i think really coding yeah. courses
0: yeah and they they weren't great oh were well, they um, not
1: yeah well no. the courses are often made by people who don't actually have much of a background Teach. in teaching so
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. um i like to think i've got an edge but i mean i also just think university these days is so expensive and Oh yeah I mean, imagine spending fifty thousand pounds on udemy courses. you would learn a lot' <laughs> you know, you would, yeah. <laughs> that would be a lot of time and a lot of uh, lectures that you could attend for that money. I know there's more to university than just that, but yeah, I like to think that universities are going to become somewhat redundant over you know the next few decades because the univer- uh, because the internet is just going to be uh, such a, a wealth of of information
0: that um, yeah like th- the thing is with like your university degrees you get it and it's really just a piece of paper it's a piece of paper that that tells people that you went through four five maybe three years of of a school yes. when you could be doing more practical things like like your course or like any other courses that you could find on on uh, all these different sites or whatever yes. you 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 get practical Knowledge that you can actually use, whereas I learned about I don't even remember yeah you know <laughs> like dumb things like i took a I took a course on um speech, okay, and when you hear that it's like oh do you learn do you learn how to give speeches no, not really, I learned how to talk that's that's literally it I just learned how to introduce myself and what to do with my hands that's why i move Ah, my hands so much ah. because i took i took an eight like a uh what is it like a five-month course on moving my hands because it's meant to be more lively it's meant to be more inclusive like i can't just be standing there with my hands like tucked tucked under my shirt or like crossed or in my pockets or holding the mic even like I have to be lively. I That's the only thing I took away from that speech course.
1: My my rhetorical skills were hardened on the mean streets of Oxford, um, <laughs> because I when I went to school and I went to school in this basically very posh all boys school. I was the chairman of the debating society, and so I think my public speaking skills were very much um, developed by that process, and I'm. You know it's had a big formative effect on on me basically it's it is a great skill though the ability to talk to speak with oh, yes.
0: confidence um yes uh, so you were born in oxford you actually said earlier Oxf- oxfordshire
1: uh, uh yeah i was born
0: is- on a farm near a village called
1: ardley near a town called Bister uh, near Oxford, about 20 miles from Oxford. But I went to school in right in the centre of Oxford. So that was, I kind of say I'm from Oxford. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. But I see Oxford as my home city. And I do love the city, even though I don't live there any longer. It's an incredibly beautiful place for people to visit. This it is incredibly expensive to live there, unfortunately. And I'm quite glad to be living in what was East Germany, where the rent is incredibly cheap compared to the UK. And since I make all of my money on the internet, it always feels like I'm paid not to be in the UK. And (laughs) there are some things about British culture I miss a great deal, like the free museums and the excellent vegetarian food. But there are things about British culture that I cannot stand, and I find not conducive to good mental health, Uh, namely the obsession with class and social class and always having to try and be better than other people. I think that's a very toxic mentality for everyone involved. And I'm glad to be living in an ex-communist part of the world (laughs) where it does just generally in the street feel more respectful and egalitarian you know if you go to a bar in this town of Magdeburg there aren't people wearing uncomfortable smart shoes and shirts Uh, and these subtle kind of social status symbols are seemingly not a concern to the people around here and we all live in flats here in Magdeburg really and from the outside flats all look basically the same and you know even for not much money it's Basically quite nice the quality of housing here. And so there is a kind of basic equality that I think is still uh following on from the DDR times. And you know, funnily <laughs> enough, a lot of the old people here you speak to, I mean, I go to this English speakers meeting and there's this old German chap called Gerald and he really fondly reminisces about the, the communist time, which is quite a surprise because I was always raised to think that it was, oh, you know, the Stasi are out hunting for you 24 hours a day and it's all great <laughs> and bleak. But I think, I mean, he said that they only, the Stasi was only really an issue if you were at the top some kind of cultural influence or a celebrity of some sort. And if you were just a normal person, it wasn't too much of a, a concern you know that not that i'm yeah. defending the stars or anything but it's just uh
0: not what you would think coming you know before you get yeah here. and yeah there's always something behind it uh the thing you talked about where the the whole i guess you call it british um mentality of like always trying to be better yeah is, um I'm not going to lie. I feel like that's a stereotype. I feel like that's a stigma against uh, British people and people from the UK where mm. they are kind of haughty and they all want to be better than you or, or trying to be better than you.
1: And so. In my experience, it's very real. And um, I come from what you could say or what people would label as an upper middle class family and things like the school that children go to, the way you talk, the way you dress, the way you act, it all has these subtle implications in terms of social class that are very difficult to escape even if you think it's all nonsense and you don't want to play the game like you know once I when I was training to be a teacher I went up north and lived in Liverpool and Liverpool traditionally has been seen as a much more working class place and as soon as a local would hear my accent there's a kind of defensiveness uh, a sense you know is he looking down at me kind of thing and the equality of people is i would say one of the few cherished beliefs that i i do cling to and i feel fairly confident in in terms of the kind of basic metaphysics of it the idea that actually the idea of objective value is something i just can't get my head around i'm a kind of nihilist in a kind of positive and optimistic sense but one consequence of nihilism that people don't necessarily realize because i think nihilism is this inherently bad thing is that if there are no objective values everyone must be equal because there's no way anyone can be better or worse than anyone else not in an objective sense it's all a matter of subjective opinion at that point and i would just consider those subjective opinions to be about as good as fiction a kind of construct of the mind and When you take all of that away you're left with a strange kind of equality not not from worthlessness though it's not like everyone's equal because we're all worthless although in a way we are worthless but it's more that the very lens of thinking in terms of value has to be abandoned because you realize that to keep hold of it is just chasing a fiction so Like going around looking at people and thinking, oh, there's no objective value, so everyone has zero value. It's a bit like going around looking at people and thinking, oh, there's no such thing as angels, and therefore no one has angel wings. It's just you're kind of chasing a a fantasy of the mind as long as you think in those ways. And I mean, one thing I've been thinking of lately, and this isn't something from formal philosophy, it's just something in my own life, is these kind of three basic delusions around value and the the way we value and evaluate other people and the first delusion i think people should definitely let go of is that they are more valuable than anyone else and the second delusion that they are less valuable than other people but the third delusion and this one might sound a bit more counterintuitive is the idea that we're equal to other people because if you go around all day obsessing over that equality, I don't know if it's particularly good for us. It's like when you see through value, you don't even need to think about it at all. And you don't need to think about equality or inequality in in an interpersonal sense. I mean, politically, it's probably still useful to, to sometimes think in those terms in terms of ensuring people have equal rights and opportunities and that kind of thing. But in terms of actual value, like metaphysically or ontologically, I, I think it's best to abandon that completely.
0: Okay. So I'll be honest that that was just like a lot of hits. You know, <laughs> <laughs> The thing about it is like when, when you start to, to have someone think about, or even not, not really think about it, but start to try and conceptualize those ideas or at least like, understand what those ideas are i feel like it opens more doors than it closes you know what i mean i do i do um so it's yeah it's 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 one of those things where it's like okay so basically it's like you have this concept of equality hmm. but then you don't you shouldn't be having this concept of equality you know it's like yeah which it's it's a lot of contradiction like it, it is
1: it's more like i suppose a, a process of thought so at first you realize the kind of illusory nature of objective value i think it takes a while for that to really sink in and then over time you you kind of just stop hopefully or you, or perhaps you could aim to stop thinking in terms of value or more to the point it's like a real real time process of evaluating others and yourself that you can slowly just stop engaging with and we all do it you know especially so-called clever folks educated folks i think are guilty of it because we think that intelligence or knowledge makes us superior sometimes but of course if there are no objective values then even intelligence and education actually are not more valuable than stupidity and ignorance as counterintuitive as that is to say and again this comes back to that dao de jing quote from before the scholar
0: learns more and more every day the sage forgets more and more every day yeah would so with that would you consider it like the more knowledge you gain the less wisdom you have, or like...
1: I think, uh, for me, wisdom is describing an attitude towards belief and an attitude towards knowledge. So you can entertain ideas, and I think it's great to have a flexible mind that is inquisitive and open to ideas. But as soon as you start mistaking what is an uncertain speculative belief for a certain item of knowledge... That's where problems arise and also where people start getting annoyed. I think a lot yeah. a lot of the arguments that occur, occur due to an imprecision in the use of language around the actual epistemology of belief. So, you know, someone arguing about the existence of an afterlife or not, again, they, they may say, well, there is a heaven or a hell. And the other person says there is no heaven or hell, where in fact, if they were being accurate, they might say, in the face of uncertainty and the limitations of the human senses, I do not know the answer to this question, but I choose to believe in X, Y or Z for the following reasons. Um, And there's a kind of humility to that use of language that isn't there in the former case. And I think intellectual humility is a massive aspect of what people label wisdom. And I think more, it can go even deeper than that because, I mean, there's, there's this one Buddhist text and it says, trying to understand the world with conceptual thought is simply tying it up in your favorite strings. I think that's a very deep analysis of what's actually going on when we're thinking what we call thinking, it's like looking for the most preferable string of words. And the one that we like the most is the one we cling to. But it's far more biased and emotional than we can at first see. And I think there is generally a kind of wisdom in letting go of thinking completely. And again, returning to the present moment of experience. And for me, this is, you know, one of the main Things with meditation, the practice of just sitting in meditation is about our relationship to thought and whether we're feeding these thoughts. And, you know, from a certain point of view, uh, in fact, this also is from that poem I mentioned before Faith in Heart Mind. There's this shocking line in it. At one point, it just says, Do not pursue the truth, simply let go of your cherished opinions. I think there's a lot oh. in that and we cling to these strings of words but actually we get much closer to the truth simply by tuning in to what is given to us in the present moment
0: I like that mm-hmm. I was uh, I was going to ask um obviously you're you're in Germany I'm in the US and in all honesty the US is just a hotbed of craziness right
1: it seems that way and, from the
0: outside, right now. I
1: must say, it, it's like that from the inside as well. <laughs> okay, a hundred
0: percent. But the thing I was going to ask is, you know, there's a lot of people here that cling to their ideals. Mm. There's a lot of people here that that deal in their own absolutes. Yeah, right? like there is a heaven and hell. There is a god, and and we're all sinners. But um, I was going to ask, like, have you ever come across in in your years of of teaching and instruction someone like that? Someone oh yes. Yeah refuses to believe you how do
1: you do well it's to- not about them believing me or not it's about them refusing to question their own beliefs and and to okay. discover the uncertainty that they ought to have and my perspective on that issue fundamentally is that the solution lies in the education system i, I recently met a teacher from finland and they have one of the world's best education systems They also have a very politically progressive and egalitarian society, and I don't think that's a coincidence. It seems to me that one of the main roles of a teacher, and this is quite a controversial thing to say, but the main role of a teacher in some ways, or one of the main roles, is to save children from their parents. And when I was a teacher in the UK, in the UK we place a massive emphasis On religious studies in schools. So that may seem like a strange thing, but it's not a kind of confessional religious studies where we're trying to make them believe this or that. It is literally the study of different religions and belief systems. And the reason that's such a big deal in the UK is because after the 50s, we had many waves of immigration from radically different cultures, you know, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, for example, many African countries sent many people many people came to Britain and so there was a need to create understanding and harmony between different faiths and that's why religious studies became such a big deal but as I understand it in the US it's almost completely forbidden for teachers to even mention religion or religious belief at all and and I understand that that must on the surface seem like a great idea and I know where it comes from people don't necessarily want their children subjected to views that they find displeasing. But the result of that is that children's religious beliefs are very much at the mercy of their parents and the very small religious communities they might be born into, some of which are, I think it's fair to interpret them as slightly cultish and potentially manipulative and, and dangerous Um, And so the solution, you know, there's this expression, religious freedom, freedom of religion, and everyone says what a wonderful thing it is. But actually what they're usually talking about, if, if it's a religious person going on about freedom of religion, is the freedom to inflict their religion on their children in such a way that they're not presented with any freedom at all. They're not presented with a a dispassionate, objective account of the other religions and then asked to choose which one is most true and reasonable. They're instead given a very narrow, very dogmatic, highly emotionally manipulative narrative around the particular religion that their parents happen to believe and want to believe is true. And I think it's holding America back massively and not against religion. I think religion is best um, approached in terms of the truth. And we should know when we read a religious story, not ask ourselves, is that true or false? But ask ourselves, what truths or what truth can I find in that story? And I think in all religions, there's a great deal of truth to be found, a great deal of wisdom. And often it's a kind of truth and wisdom that the scientific materialist worldview and uh, method and the procedures associated with it could never give us. So I think especially the kind of mystical traditions are profoundly important for people. But just placing faith in beliefs, I think, is a very dangerous way of pursuing knowledge that will never deliver satisfaction. Uh, to anyone who's really concerned with the truth. Um, It may deliver some kind of satisfaction to people looking for the most pleasant fairy tale, but someone who actually is concerned with the truth might not like it sometimes. Uh, That's, I think, one thing a lot of philosophers maybe forget. Again, when they talk about nihilism (laughs) and pessimism, a lot of the criticisms are regarding how useful or how pleasant it is. But actually, the truth and reality has no concern for our emotions. And so if you're really yeah. <laughs> dedicated to the truth, you may find some of the more pessimistic aspects of it have to be accepted as well.
0: You know, what's funny is um, pessimism is, is... I wouldn't say it's like a mantra of mine, but I do live a more pessimistic idea, not, not necessarily in terms of, of like philosophy or anything it's more in terms of i'm pessimistic about plans i'm pessimistic about events i see just so i can go in there with a lower expectation and if it's bad i'm you know yeah vilified i'm validated but if it's good i'm happily surprised exactly you, avo- so and that you way... avoid
1: disappointment as well exactly
0: right? and i think well I've i've learned when it comes to politics
1: certainly to always <laughs> expect the worst you know after brexit after Brexit, I yeah. was like, "I just accept that the voters often are not great, <laughs> and yeah. <then> expect well, <laughs> the worst." Yes,
0: <laughs> just think of the chaos here in the U.S. Oh, don't get me
1: started! <laughs> but I should congratulate you on the recent turn of events. I know I speak for a lot well, of other Europeans in saying that we're very happy with how it seems to be going at the moment. Yeah. But
0: well, I'm I'm glad he. Uh, Joe Biden's, you know, president-elect. He's he's making moves already to to rejoin the Paris Accords. And yeah, yeah. Join rejoin uh WHO and all this other stuff. But man, those past few the past few days have been have been generally very hectic and very. Um, I've been very conscious not to talk about it to the people I see. I see. Um, yeah. Not that I go out a lot, yes. but you know, of course, with with the pandemic and all. But I live in the south. Okay. And the South is highly red. Yes. You know, like the red and blue, which is a whole other thing that I I can't stand is the bipartisanism where we have red and blue. It doesn't make
1: much sense to me. That's the thing. Because people, I think in America, people often vote for an issue they care about very deeply. But this often leads them to ally themselves with people who they don't really agree with at all. And so you have, for example, right wing libertarians who ally themselves with evangelical conservative christians when on the surface they should be natural enemies because mm-hmm. social conservatives kind of want to take freedoms away and have us living a much more constrained life according to a set of much more narrow social norms i, I mean i recently actually made another course far less serious and frankly less good actually on <laughs> on the psychology of conspiracy theories and what I found interesting this year is the prominence of conspiracy theories in political discourse and the fact that conspiracy theories have really cost many lives. You know, there's, there's yeah. evidence, for example, that people who believed that the COVID-19 epidemic was a conspiracy were less likely to engage in social distancing behaviours. So it's reasonable to suppose that, frankly, some people have died as a result of conspiracy-style thinking. But it isn't to say that conspiracies don't happen. And actually, one of my general conclusions on, on that topic is that if you want people to believe in conspiracy theories less, the government has to stop committing conspiracies. Because it in the past <laughs> certainly has done with PRISM and with MKUltra and, and things like that. And the amount of kind of redacted text on many of the files that do get released... Only I think deepens the lack of trust, the cynicism and the suspicion leads to this very unhelpful conspiracy style thinking that i mean this is the other thing when a conspiracy theory is correct, it can save lives, so Jewish people living in Germany in the 1930s who were prone to conspiracy style thinking would have been more likely to run and live. Mm-hmm. Um, but when conspiracy theories are wrong, then they can cost lives. Uh, so mm-hmm. people have to be very careful and they're not being careful enough and they're often getting very attached to conspiracy theories purely because it serves their political interests um, mm-hmm. but we were talking before about um, pessimism and philosophical pessimism is something I think people should explore and I think one of, for me yeah. one of the strange things about it is when I read philosophical pessimism it's such a joy it's so enjoyable to read pessimistic philosophy. I even kind of laugh out loud sometimes when I read it. I read a book last year called A Conspiracy Against the Human Race by a guy called Ligotti, and it is the most pessimistic, negative. You know, he talks about the universe as if it's a kind of meat grinder in which, in, in <laughs> which individual humans are like eggs being cracked in this for this horrific omelette with no... No concern for us in a completely indifferent universe. And that indifference of the universe is something also central in existentialism. So I don't know if you've heard of Albert Camus. Uh, he wrote a book called The Outsider, L'Estrangeur, and, and at the end, this guy's
0: I've I've heard of those. Okay.
1: I mean, yeah. in his 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 fiction is great. In fact, it's often said that philosophy, uh, Sartre writes great philosophy and terrible fiction, whereas Camus (laughs) writes terrible philosophy and great fiction. And there's an element of truth in that. And Camus fiction is great. And it usually ends with some kind of epiphany, some kind of realization about the existential truth of things. And in The Outsider, you know, this guy has killed someone and he goes to court and only then does he get shamed and judged by people. And, on his way out of the courthouse, he has his epiphany, and, he sa- and and he says, "And then I surrendered to the sublime indifference of the universe." And that's the kind of profound <laughs> revelation, but it is profound. Uh, when we look up at the stars, I think many of us feel a weight being lifted off our shoulders because we realize our own insignificance, our vanity. And the indifference yep. of the universe, and it's a wonderful feeling, a wonderful thing to be reminded of um, how unimportant we are. Um, <laughs> um, but yes, I recommend uh, this book, "A Conspiracy Against Mankind." You might find yourself two um, percent less happy after reading it. <laughs> uh, only two percent. Only two percent. <laughs> but um, in some ways, it's somewhat liberating, and the, the reason it's called a conspiracy against mankind is because. The idea that life is good and that we're all having a wonderful time is a part of the social status game. So we all end up playing it. And we know after a while that if people say, how are you doing? And you'd be like, oh, God you know, well, the human condition and endless yeah. suffering and did you read what Buddha said about dukkha and impermanence? We're not going to make many friends very quickly. Yeah. And so we all end <laughs> up towing the party line, life is wonderful, let's make more kids because that's going to be really enjoyable for them. Um, and if you don't, you know, this taboo emerges that ends up being a kind of conspiracy that actually kind of perpetuates human suffering a great deal. Mm. Um, so yeah, fantastic yeah, this, book. I recommend it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the thing is, uh, I'm glad you brought up the children thing because um, uh, would you consider yourself a millennial? Well, like, yes, I would. Older, I, I would want. a millennial. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: So um, I don't know about you, but here a lot of people I've spoken to, like we're we're closing in on our on our 30s. Yeah. And we none of us really have kids, and we don't really plan to have kids. That's right. For a few years, and the thing is, like. You know, our parents are constantly harping us, like, hey, you know you're you're twenty seven, you're twenty eight, when are you gonna have kids? Yeah. Or like my brother's like, Hey, you're thirty, you're married, you're about to be thirty like when are you gonna have kids? And it's like first, this is a bad time. Yeah. You know? Like with everything going on. Second, it's it's a tough it's a tougher decade and century because things are getting crazier mm, you know getting climate more hectic and stuff i mean it, exactly for sure yeah. and it's it's a harsh world to be brought into you know and uh, i'm also glad you brought up the whole like because like in the in the u.s there's this concept of life liberty and pursuit of happiness yes right? and one of the things that i really stick to is the pursuit of happiness you know it's it's not life liberty and happiness it's the pursuit mm. you know and, and a lot of people forget the idea of like you're not really meant to be happy. You're meant to kind of find what makes you happy. You know, you're meant to pursue it, mm. and so that's that was my, uh, I guess, concept of that. You know, mm. so one thing I will ask is, um living in Germany, right? You live in the, in the East German side, yes, ex East Germany, so yes, ex East German. So you're you're I would. You would consider it more of like a, a socialist environment, right? Yes, culturally, certainly. Yeah, culturally. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, about... I'm sorry.
1: Compared to Britain and compared to America, I think statistically it's a more equal society in terms of economic inequality. So, in that sense, I think you know it is more socialist, or at least social de- dem- democracy. You know, uh, strong welfare systems, healthcare, <laughs> the education's basically free here. So, do come over; it's free for foreigners too. Uh, I don't know why British people aren't coming here in the in their millions to get their in droves, degrees. Yeah. But sorry, you were going to ask.
0: Oh yeah. I was, I was going to ask about that actually ah. <laughs> about like the, the, the freeness of it. Yeah. And I, I've, I feel like that's much more of a, it's not really acceptable, but more of a easier route to, to, to happiness, I guess, in a way. Yes.
1: And I think, it's worth mentioning, you know, in existential psychology, the pursuit of happiness kind of takes backseat to the pursuit of meaning. Like Friedrich Nietzsche said, one who has a why can bear almost any how. So if you have a strong sense of, you know, reason to live and a purpose that has a value behind your life. Um, at least a subjective sense of it not a delusion about an objective one but subjective sense they're going to help you deal with suffering a great deal but to respond to your question I think you're onto something and I think one of the issues is how people are conceptualizing freedom because it, it basically ends up losing any touch with reality like What good is so-called freedom if you don't have access to any options in life? Like, options are a kind of freedom. And that means having options when it comes to your own education, your own university, and the option of, like, getting your leg fixed if it's broken without being crippled by debt forever. Um, This is all a kind of freedom. And we've reached this perverse situation where autocratic countries with no democracy, the people are more free than people in democracies, because the democracies themselves have become a way of removing actual freedoms from people. And let me tell you, as a British person, that's exactly what's happened with Brexit. Like, my time in Germany is running out now. After December 31st, I will have 90 days, and then I will have to leave Germany essentially unless I want to get really ingrained into the system here and so democracy in Britain has been used to take freedom away from people to take choices away to take options away and I think people need to focus more on that reality of you know what is giving people the most options in life instead of these ideological ideas of freedom that I mean right now people in china are walking around and going to restaurants and bars and people here in germany and in england and in america are not so who are the most free people i would say the people in china even though they have no choice as to who is ruling uh, and the the great irony is that in america and in britain frankly we're given a choice between two incompetent options whereas in china they're given no choice but to have competent leaders. And the same is true in Vietnam. Vietnam has had, I think, less than 20 people die from coronavirus because they have competent leaders that they have no choice about. Uh, but as a result, they are more free than we are. Um, and work that one out, listeners, because it's true. Uh, and I, I've been to Vietnam and they're very free people. They're, free or no, they're more free than us in almost every measure, except one and that is free to question their government this is what a vietnamese person told me you know they live without red tape they can do basically what they want and unlike america they don't have one in a hundred people in prison one percent of americans are in prison and and america has 25 percent of the world's prison population and sure you know they get disappeared perhaps or told off if they question their government but by all of these other measures they are more free than we are and and seeing how they live they seem more free and more relaxed in terms of how much they have to work to survive i mean this is again a very common sense measure of freedom if you're born into a society where you have to work a 9 to 5 job with not many days holiday for fifty years of your life to barely afford retirement—what kind of freedom is that? Not a particularly appealing one to me, anyway. Yes.
0: Yeah, the thing is, um, it, I'm actually—I went to Vietnam as well. Like my parents were actually born there. Oh right. We're Chinese. Yeah, we're Chinese by descent. Because, oh, you know the whole. And which like, si- which
1: city were you from? Saigon. Ah. Okay. Yes. I mean, I've never been to such a capitalist place as Saigon. I mean, and, I, and I think they have actually the fastest growing economy in the world right now, Vietnam. It's, so, yeah,
0: it's very strong. But the thing is, like, um, they still bring this concept of, of the idea where if someone's wronged you, you don't really call the police like you would here in the US or maybe in the UK. Yeah. You just go handle it yourself. I see. You know, that's, yeah. that's a very, like, free idea of, like, you know, if there's an issue, just go deal with it, yeah you know if if you want to go do something, just go do it like yeah, when I went there, my cousins they'd have jobs and like, hey what what do you want to do? And it's like, oh, don't you have work but like, not really yeah and it's like this this freedom thing, and also you brought up the the China where a lot of people are walking around now going to restaurants. yeah, it's funny because my girlfriend, she's also Chinese, and uh, her grandmother, who used to take care of me when I was younger. She's back home in China, and they, at, think about back in March or April, they had the whole quarantine. You know, yeah, no one could really leave their homes, and so you had this, this like eighty eighty year old grandma, Chinese grandma, walking around in the streets, and you have the the troopers come out, like the soldiers come out, and it's like, hey, you you got to go home, and she's screaming at them, like screaming at the these government yes. house, like soldiers with guns. She's like. It's like you can't tell me to go home i'm older than you and it's like uh hold on that's that's the government and then like it's funny because like they know who she is and so they know that she's a little aggressive yeah so like all right we'll just we'll we'll walk you home it's okay you know it's, it's fine and it's it's funny because you would imagine from the outside that um it's China. Yeah. If, if you start doing this bad stuff, you, if you start not following their rules, That's right. you're going to disappear. Black bagged.
1: But, yes. Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. But it's more geared towards the people that have actually um, done bad. You know, sure. they just see this grandma. What's this grandma going to do? Yeah. You know, but it's, it's, it's always funny. I always relate this story because again, she's like, she's about yay tall and she's 80 years old and she's walking around in her pajamas with a with little flip flops, just walking through the, the the village, and you have these soldiers drive up in their in their armored truck and be like, "Hey, get back home." It's like, you get back home, yeah. And it's just, they're just screaming at each
1: other. But yeah, it's. I, th- I mean, I think um, both on the right and left, people focus on different threats to freedom. And and on the right, the threat to freedom is perhaps mainly the government. And on the left, it's mm-hmm. mainly corporations and the consolidation Mm. of corporate power but what people think about less is how we all work to remove freedom from other people by a much more soft and subtle and insidious process of shaming and and also uh recording you know i'm a a big fan of reddit the social media platform, (laughs) and there's a few subs like there's took too much and uh, st- <laughs> uh like street fight porn and this kind of thing and people feel <laughs> people very quick to uh and also cringe and things like this but people are very quick to pull out their phones and start recording people when they are at their lowest points in life yeah. and, and we're very quick to judge the person being filmed but actually a lot of the time i'm thinking what an awful human being it is that's holding the camera right now to try to humiliate the person in this way. And what general effect that has on our freedom because for many decades, we complained about CCTV cameras and now Mm -hmm. we all hold the CCTV cameras in our hands and use it to control the behaviors of other people. And I don't think it's making society more free. But of course, the existentialist would say, that actually the greatest threat to freedom isn't necessarily governments, corporations or other people. It is ourselves and, mm-hmm. and the way that we pretend that we're not free on certain issues. And we, you know, self-deception is a recurring yeah. theme in existential psychology. The, the lies we tell ourselves to stop us changing our lives. And one of the most famous existential uh, therapists is called Rollo May, who practiced in the existential humanist tradition in America and one of his strategies in therapy was simply to ask his patient who was complaining about their life he would say so why don't you just change your name and move to California then why don't you just change your name and move to another city and of course at that point they're confronted with the fact that they are choosing to perpetuate their situation and 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 so why are they doing it? Uh, and this is where this concept of payoffs comes in. And Yalom talks about this a great deal, that people perpetuate the conditions that cause themselves suffering because they get certain payoffs from it that they perhaps don't want to face up to. So why is this individual staying in an abusive relationship? Because if they leave, they have to face their existential Isolation. Why does the person have OCD and keeps washing their hands? Well, because if they let go of that control, they have to face up to the fact that actually death can come at any moment, probably not even from bacteria. They could have an aneurysm or a heart attack or a stroke or any number of things. And so by letting go of the symptom, they would have to face this much broader anxiety. So there's a kind of subtle payoff Mm -hmm. that people deny and, and deceive themselves about Um yeah it's I just think you know this existential therapy when you understand it it's so it makes so much sense and it's so radically different to other approaches to psychology that more people need to know about it and I was very lucky actually because I first learned about existential therapy when I was only 18 years old a teacher yeah. recommended me Yalom's book and i'm very grateful what that happened because i think it has helped me be a bit more authentic And free in my life
0: one question. I did have um So in the uk and I guess also by extension if you know in germany, um it, Are there like cor- like courses for like secondary school like for high school middle school? um For like this kind of stuff like for philosophy for for psychology even certainly psychology there is in in the uk
1: Students can study it at both GCSE and A-level, so that's from age 14. They can study psychology. Mm. Um, A lot of the kind of practical emotional education occurs in, we call it the PSHE curriculum, which is the, I think, personal, social, health and emotional education, and... Mm. Uh, teachers also have a remit summed up with the act. So many acronyms in education you now, but it's the SM <laughs> SMSC uh, remit, which is the social, moral, cultural, and spiritual remit to mm-hmm. that, that we should help young people develop in those ways. But there aren't many formal courses um, when okay. it comes to, to philosophy. There's not,
0: but a lot of I was, oh, Sorry, yeah, yeah go ahead. I was gonna say um, here in the U.S., it's like we have this huge focus on mathematics and science. Yeah, you know, not a lot of focus on on anything really. Like, I would consider this more of an art, like anything art related, or, or like there's no real focus on. I see. Even English, like we we're taught English, quote unquote, it's more just like sort of literature and reading and writing. Right. But like, there's there's no concept of that. I see. Well. Yeah. And I think um,
1: this is where you might want to bring in a kind of Marxist critique of the education system. And actually, you know, so I taught GCSE sociology and and you literally teach young people about Marxist perspectives, including Mm. in the sociology of education. And I would ask these teenagers, I'd be like, why are you here and why are you dressed up as office workers in what is essentially a glorified office? when you should probably be outside playing and enjoying your in from a certain point of view the best years of your life you know you're Mm -hmm. young and healthy good-looking people you should probably be kissing each other and having a party (laughs) and stuff but you're in here on this beautiful day listening to me talk about sociology why and 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 why why is there such an emphasis as you say on mathematics and science and You know, the Marxist perspective is that the education system is simply one of many tools of capitalism to prepare the next Mm. generation of workers. And actually, when you look at the history of the education system, that was quite clearly what it was about. You know, the church Mm. and employers around the time of the Industrial Revolution uh, created schools in order to ensure that the next generation were well prepared for their roles in factories and offices uh, and as Mm -hmm. as simple as that and you know I I see schools as a kind of junction between many conflicting interests you have the interests of the parents and uh, you know you were talking about making grandchildren before yeah (laughs) and uh, anything that goes that gets in the way of that is taboo in the education system so you shouldn't necessarily ever talk about whether that's really a good idea or not to be making more humans but of course the interests of employers and their representatives which are mainly politicians you know who who are hoping to make the education system as well tailored towards future employers as possible and even the interests of the school you know the school reputation the interests of teachers and their reputation and they don't want to get in trouble from here there and everywhere they want some prestige But in all of this, the interests of the student often get deprioritized. And uh, I think there's a a lack of critical reflection in a lot of the education system. And I think a good good example of this actually is drugs education. You know, um, teachers claim that they're educating young people out of a motive of harm reduction. But I think a lot of the time they're actually simply educating them so as to reinforce very harmful social norms around drugs and especially alcohol. So to give a very simple example, if a teacher's students leave the drugs education program and they go to university and they binge drink, but they don't do any drugs, many teachers might feel, oh, what a wonderful job I've done. But actually in terms of harm reduction, if they went there and did some magic mushrooms and smoked a little bit of cannabis, actually that is probably more in the young person's interest than the binge drinking. And so what, you know, what would an actual harm reduction drugs education look like in terms of the consequences, probably far more use of psychedelics and far less use of alcohol. Um, But of course, most
0: teachers can't really see that. I think. I mean, I don't know about over in the in Europe, but here in the U.S., a lot of teachers drink as well. Yeah, and the thing is, there's such a culture of it. Indeed. that you know, you you could go up to anyone anywhere and be like, do, like you could you could ask them like, hey, what are you what are you drinking? It's like, oh, I don't drink, and it's like, why? They need a reason. Yeah, and it's almost as if it is that that norm where if you don't drink, you you're obviously not drinking for for some sort of like medical reason yeah. or or maybe even a religious reason but then it's more of just... It's just, like,
1: I just say it's because it's a crap drug. You know, there are <laughs> better drugs, you know. And it's not yeah. that I think drugs are good. There are some awful drugs, but um, mm. some of the things that are labeled as drugs have potential benefits that have been proven by research. And there are many, mm-hmm. you know, clinical psychologists who want to see some of the psychedelics used in the therapeutic process. And I think the evidence backs up that that could could well be effective. I used to go to this academic conference in the UK called Breaking Convention. And it's a multidisciplinary academic conference all about psychedelic drugs. And, you know, this is uh, the great taboo that if you were, you know, I said earlier that I was motivated by secrets and secret knowledge. Mm -hmm. And anyone else out there who's interested in secret knowledge might want to go to such conferences and (laughs) Investigate objectively the applications of psychedelics, but yeah, I mean, alcohol is just an old drug. It's like someone using Mm. mandrake root or or hemlock (laughs) or something. To me, it's like, why would you do that? And you know, we spoke about Buddhism before, and one of the precepts in Buddhism is a precept against intoxicants. And and I asked Mm -hmm. a monk once, you know, what do you mean by intoxicants? And they said anything. That makes the mind a toxic environment. I think that's a fantastic way to look at it. Even anger can be an intoxicant, and it's a highly addictive intoxicant. of acts; it can make the mind a very toxic place to be. And yeah. uh, some, you know, a, a glass of wine probably isn't an intoxicant, but a bottle probably is. And yeah. uh, and actually, the early text, I think, you know what what Buddha actually said was. Uh, to abstain from drinks that lead to heedlessness. So, and he was living in India in a time where there were Shivite Hindus who smoked Mm -hmm. uh, hashish and, and cannabis. And he said nothing about that ever. So he was frankly, basically just talking about alcohol. And Mm -hmm. there's a, there's a great story actually from Buddhism about why alcohol should be avoided. And, uh, you know there's this monk walking in the mountains and a woman comes out of a hut she's holding a baby and a and a bottle of wine and and there's a goat there and she says oi you know monk you got to choose one of these things right you got to have sex with me or drink this wine or kill the goat and eat it and if you don't then i'm going to kill this baby and myself so the monk's like huh You know, what do I do here? You know, I mean, I obviously can't kill the goat and eat it because I've taken this vow of non-violence. I'm not meant to do that. Mm. And and I obviously can't have sex with this woman because I've taken a vow of celibacy. I'm not even allowed to touch women. So Mm. I suppose it's best if I just drink wine. And so he drinks the wine. And of course, he gets drunk, and then he mm-hmm. shags the woman and kills the goat and eats <laughs> it. you know and so <laughs> the basic idea is that you know alcohol is a moral corrupter, and mm. uh, I think that's that's generally true. It tends not to bring out the best in us, whereas mm-hmm. I don't know I mean, I've been to a lot of music festivals and especially trance festivals, which I recommend to any hippies who, who want to be a frontier <laughs> of fun in this world but anyway the people on these psychedelics they walk around with a particular grace and dignity that you don't see in a drunk person stumbling around shouting at people getting rowdy and yeah mm. i'm quite superficial in my judgment of drugs actually uh, you know if, if people look like they're they've had a lobotomy on a drug then I'm probably not going to do it. And if they look switched on and kind of, you know, like I said, a bit graceful and and elegant and dignified, I often take that to be a fairly good reflection of, of a particular substance. Yeah.
0: yeah. I I think it really, you really got to look at it if it's like kind of like an elevator or like a, um, what's the opposite of that? Where, where it kind of brings you down and like calms you down, mills you out. But, (laughs) <laughs> the, it's funny because you mentioned anger also being an intoxicant yes and when i was younger i was very prone to it you know i was I was a very angry kid for no reason you know it was, it was just something it was just something about me right and so as i've gotten older i've come to this this concept of of i don't know why i was ever angry i, I still do have these angry spouts i guess it's more of like a mental thing mm. but I've come to realize that I, my my anger isn't related to hatred. You know, hatred is like one of the worst it, it, it's something that will hold you down for the rest of your life, you know, hating anything. Yeah. And so um there have been times where people have wronged me or even the topic's been brought up where I I just have to admit that I I can't hate anyone. You know, it's just I, it's against my nature, I guess. Mm. You know, like you could even say like I know I talked about not getting political, but I voted for Biden because I I can't say I hate Trump. I just don't know him, you know, I don't. It's it's not in my it's not in my nature to hate him. I I, I I wish I could be not like his concepts. I
1: wish I could be so confident. I'm glad to see the back of that man. But partly because he seems to inspire those who do hate so much yes um, yeah but i must point out that you're disagreeing with one of the greatest philosophers that's ever existed and uh, that is jedi master yoda who said <laughs> you know fear leads to anger and anger leads to hate and there is a great deal of truth in those words because usually yeah. anger is coming from a sense of threat and anxiety mm-hmm. and fear um I I did read in a book, you know, someone asked a a Buddhist monk, you know, do enlightened people get angry? And they said, yes, you know, if there is a a righteous cause for anger, but as soon as the cause ends, the anger is let go of. And Mm -hmm. certainly in the Buddhist tradition, anger, I think is seen as, well, it's one of the three poisons, you know, greed, anger, and delusion. And I know, Mm -hmm. You know there's the Buddha said that clinging to anger is like holding on to a hot coal that you're waiting mm-hmm. to yeah. throw at someone else, and so the issue is always the attachment to that emotion that would i think you know no human's going to go through life without getting angry uh, yeah. nor should we advocate and expect that I don't know if it would even be healthy to to never get angry, but it's about when we start fueling it and ruminating and obsessing mm-hmm. and and yeah, no, we'll do it i suppose sometimes but
0: yeah it's it's more of uh like i guess yoda said you know fear to anger to hate it's a a stepping stool you know like if you if you hold on to that anger like you said like that hot coal, yeah it starts to become hatred and and that hate will consume you yeah you know that it, it it'll take up everything about you yeah like you couldn't even process anything else or accept anything else or, or think of anything else with that in your body, you yes. know? And so I guess it is better to let that anger out. You know, it's better to release that, that sort of, uh, wrath, I yes. guess.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and this, uh, you know, this basic fear, that um, that drives anger, especially when we look at political issues and especially when we look at like ra- racism, for example, the hatred, mm. hatred of other ethnic groups, um, or, or races. Uh, I, I think that that fear is rooted in a kind of deeper delusion, which again, we spoke about nihilism before. Like Nihilism presents an antidote to it because frankly, the idea that I'm important or that my potential offspring and descendants are especially important is false. There's no value to any of it. And there's certainly no more value to my hypothetical descendants than to those of someone of another race or ethnicity. And once you like fully accept one's valuelessness uh, and the equality that's implied by that, it makes it all much less threatening. Because I think a lot of racism is driven by fears of replacement and fears of you know, them coming for our women this kind of language mm. and there's a lot of arrogance in that a lot of like it's like too much self-esteem basically too mm. much sense of value that it's it's about myself and and because I'm so valuable and I think in many ways that's the key delusion that, that when you accept it again the truth isn't always pleasant and I know it's like, I mean, I don't want to have a dig at Jordan Peterson because I don't actually know too much about his his teachings. I know he's got a lot of fans. But from what I've seen, he often starts by talking about why young men are valuable. And then Mm. all the young men, their ears prick up and they start listening to him because he's telling them what they want to hear. And if he started Mm. by saying, you're all worthless uh, and here's how you can be happier, no one's going to listen. No, there's no there's no lie easier to sell, no delusion easier to sell to people than their own self-importance and superiority. Mm. And a lot of religions pander to that, incidentally. And I wonder sometimes if Mr. Peterson, Professor Peterson does also, but I'm, again, don't profess to be an expert <laughs> on him. I'm not in a place to criticise his teachings because I, I don't know enough about him. It's just something i've noticed about some of his videos you know this
0: yeah you know, yeah so <laughs> this has been a good conversation i like this. well thank I've you learned, yeah uh, thank you for having me i've learned a lot yeah yeah it's um brought an hour and a half in is there any uh shout outs you want to give or anything of course your course is still oh, up there existential therapy psychotherapy fantastic. and yeah. counseling um on uh, udemy
1: yeah mainly
0: that really
1: that's uh, you know i've made literally thousands of resources which sit on the internet waiting for people to buy them mainly teaching resources mainly religious studies and sociology on tests and teachers pay teachers but that course is the one that I'm most proud of actually the one I feel is kind of the best thing I've ever made and if people sign up for it they'll be they should be pleased with the, the detail and the depth that it goes into. So, yeah, if people have found existential psychology interesting and want to learn more about it, it's the cheapest way. To learn a lot about
0: it, so it's definitely cheap. Yeah, exactly. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. I should say afford. Um, so, I should
1: say affordable because in America, cheap cheap <laughs> is a bad word. Isn't in England, cheap just means affordable. In America, cheap is like he doesn't like to spend lots on his food or something.
0: But. Well, it really depends on who you ask. I guess. Okay. Um, I'm okay with using cheap. Okay. I, I do. I do understand the concept of saying affordable is probably better, but yeah. it's definitely very affordable. um Can are all your courses on Udemy?
1: Yes, yes, they are. It's actually making online courses is only something I started doing this year. I, it's mm, it's okay. funny how like the impetus to do these things just comes sometimes. And I, it kind of been in the back of my mind, like I need to make this course. And, and yeah. I don't know, when you see that there's a gap on the internet, and uh, mm-hmm. and and you know that you can do a good job of filling that gap that's, I mean, I don't mean to be arrogant, but sometimes, you know, like it's the same when I'm making lessons. Like a lot of the money I make is simply making lessons and units of lessons for teachers to download Mm. because teachers don't have enough time. But you look at what else is out there and sometimes you can kind of be fairly confident that you can make something that is in an objective sense just better, which you can offer Mm. for less money. And then if you do it, you know, in theory... You can make money, and actually, the main challenge, you know, a lot, a lot of people out there, I suppose, are thinking about how to make passive income these days. It's, it's a bit of like the dream. And actually, I've done so far; I'm doing pretty well. You know, I live off passive income, and uh, and I make more than when I was a full time teacher. I won't be a millionaire anytime soon, but I do do pretty well for myself. Actually, the entire challenge is advertising. You can make the best X, Y, and Z in the world. But if people don't know it exists, then you won't make much money from it. And yeah. this is the, the problem with the internet in a way is that, I mean, this is why Google and Facebook are, are so powerful, <laughs> right? And, and they end yeah. up taking a hell of a lot of the actual money that you make because you have not much choice but to go with them. And
0: yeah, the thing is, um, I had uh, Bilal on. He's the creator of that startup that I, I t- uh, talked about before the show started, where it's a, it's a brilliant idea. It's basically, he, he he calls it an Uber for, um, computers. Okay. So basically if you have a computer issue or anything, you can get in touch with him and his company or his startup and he'll help you fix it. Good idea. And it's a brilliant idea, but he, we were talking about how marketing is the biggest factor. Yes. That's the biggest, um, I guess you could say money sink yeah. because yeah. that's the, that's the part where you have to, you have to spend money to make money, you know? Yes. So I guess it's very similar with, with, uh, you and your courses it is Um,
1: yes i mean do you have a website uh i well i have a few here and there for different things i mean i mean another example i do have this other project and it's um it's an organization i started called the global metacognition institute and it's aimed at secondary school teachers and it focuses on teaching resources that uh develop metacognition and and uh foster self-regulated learning behaviors and You know the the thing is, there's 20 odd years of research going on and on about how important metacognition is, but barely any resources out there for teachers to actually foster that. And so I've Mm -hmm. I've made this massive suite of educational resources focused on metacognition and self-regulated learning, and that's at globalmetacognition.com. But no, we're talking about advertising before, and if I were to go onto Google and search for metacognition. I mean, the results are like 10 years old and my site's nowhere to be seen. But objectively, they are the best resources you can get for it. Certainly the best looking. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) there's no doubt that (laughs) because some of the stuff out there is basic as anything. And uh, I always make sure my resources are at least very pretty because uh, a lot mm. of teaching is an image game, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, like,
0: it's gotta be eye catching. Exactly.
1: Not just like for the students, but it's like, what is the headmaster going to think when he flicks through my books? Is yeah. this going <laughs> to look good or not? And as a teacher, mm. it's actually quite <laughs> important that it's all quite pretty and and, and good looking and, you know, <laughs> some graphic design has gone into it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, to give an example a lot of teachers might use an exit ticket, which is something you give students when they leave the classroom to reflect on what they've learned and what was difficult to learn about and, and that kind of thing. And usually mm-hmm. the ones you download have been made by teachers in the 10 minutes before lesson one uh, that they've just had to throw <laughs> together. Whereas I've yeah. used, you know, like professional graphic designers to make mine so they look really fancy you know they look like fairground ride tickets and things like this and so they're kind (laughs) of they look
0: legitimate well they do they
1: yeah they look kind of colorful (laughs) and fun and i think it's uh, it makes a difference but yes
0: but man adam yeah thank you for this man thank you for uh coming on the show thank you for for sharing your your course and and hopefully people actually will will hop on there and and learn something about themselves and about existentialism and about the meaning of all this, or at least try to learn the meaning of all
1: this. I do hope so. Thank you so much for having me, Max.
0: Of course. Of course. Um, So guys, if you guys want to hear more from, from Adam, feel free to check out his his course. It's 18 hours. It's I, from what I've been told by Adam, apparently they're going to have another sale at some point because this sale is ending in like four hours. So by the time this video comes out, this video will come out uh, or this episode will come out the 23rd. So next Monday or next, next Monday. But um, either way, guys, same old spiel. If you're regular listeners, thank you so much for your continued support. If you're new listeners and you liked what you heard, feel free to write a review. If you didn't like what you heard, feel free to write a review. Either way, write a review. It helps me out. I like to learn about myself and, and always constantly trying to improve. But either way, guys, Thank you so much. Have an amazing day. Get out there, get hungry, and good luck.